Welcome to The Proletarian Contrarian, the podcast where we reevaluate bad films through a leftist perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. And saddle up your horses, partners, because we're throwing together a posse today. Yep, we're going to rustle up some uh, some baddies, some black hats, and some white hats. And some white hoods. <laughs> and some white <laughs> hoods. Yeah, that's right. Um, in uh, 1993's Posse, uh, directed by uh, Mario Van Peebles, um, for uh, those of you who are not uh, familiar with the name, he's actually the uh, son of Marvin Van Peebles. And if you're not familiar with that name, uh, he is a <laughs> uh, famous... Uh, director um, from the 70s. Uh, he directed a black exploitation film called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Uh, there's a bunch of S's at the end of yeah, Badass. Uh, for for everyone listening, uh, Badass here is spelled B A A D A S S S S S. Yep. That is, yes. that is the correct title. <laughs> I didn't just uh, make that up when I wrote it to the show notes. Um, I've actually never seen that film, but. Um, it is uh, like semi-autobiographical film uh, of Marvin Van Peebles. And actually, Mario Van Peebles, um, the director of Posse, uh, plays like a younger version of Marvin Van Peebles in Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Uh, so mm-hmm. they've been in each other's films forever. Uh, Marvin Van Peebles uh, is actually in this film Posse as a character called Papa Joe. So yeah, the Peebles' father and son uh, have been um, just really big stars in the black exploitation film uh you know for for decades basically yeah and that kind of um father son like working relationship and like personal relationship that 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 brings a metatextual element to this movie which we'll get into yeah um, for sure but yeah the, like that whole like intergenerational um quest i guess to to achieve something well, we, we can get into it once we get to the plot breakdown also in this movie uh, a couple of the big names we have here uh stephen baldwin uh plays a <laughs> kind of a fail son named uh, <laughs> little jay yeah one um, of the only white people in this movie which is a good thing yeah yeah he, he is um the other uh prominent white guy is billy zane playing the main <laughs> villain who's the bad version of the fail son and we have a lot of thoughts on him yes rounding up mario van peebles posse is uh tone loke tiny lister Big Daddy Kane and Charles Lane. Two other big names that are in this movie are uh, Pam Greer and uh, Isaac Hayes of South Park fame. Um, they show up as like random uh, townsfolk near the end of it. Oh, yeah, and the Family Matters guy. Yeah. Uh, yep. uh, Reginald, Reginald Valjean said, yeah, man. Yeah, this the dad from stacked. Family Matters um, yeah. is, is another random. I think he's the barber. Um, at the yeah, end of he, the film. He's the, yep, he's the barber. I yeah. think he lives. I think he does. One of the few, um, spoiler alert people. Um, we also have Reginald and Warren Hudlin, who are um, director and producers, um, famously of the of the film House Party. Um, they just play random reporters who, um, who are the bookend story um, for this film, uh, along with another. There's only three people in this bookend uh, uh, story, um, which... Uh, kind of sets up the idea of, you know, um, this posse and, and their backstory. Uh, Woody Strode is the other uh, actor in this scene, and he is a famous actor, uh, deceased now, uh, but he was, he's like the other slave in Spartacus who they fight in the in the Colosseum. I think he's the one with like the the trident oh really yeah so he's he's uh he's in spartacus and he's just been in a ton of westerns um he was in just a ton of john ford westerns and just um he's in 
uh, he's at least in one Sergio Leone Western. He's in um, Once Upon a Time in the West. And what, what's interesting about all these like actors in this movie, like a lot of them are like very big names from black exploitation films and, and Westerns that we were talking about. And they all just kind of like show up as like little, not quite cameos, but like bit parts. And they just like play like, you know, townsfolk or, or random cowboys they meet. Um, I don't know. It's it's kind of cool for any any cinema nerds out there. Yeah, if you look at the rest of Mario Van Peebles' uh, filmography, you'll see um, countless uh, actors and actresses uh, from this film peppered throughout. So the the bare-bones plot of this film is that the posse um, is a group of Buffalo soldiers of the 10th Cavalry Regiment um, who uh, fought during the Spanish-American War. Uh, oh, and then plus uh, Stephen Baldwin, because he's obviously <laughs> yeah. not a Buffalo soldier. Uh, they desert um, because their uh, Colonel, Colonel Graham, played by Billy Zane, is a terrible racist and wants them dead. Uh, and then they just um, they go to the American West, um, where uh, Jesse Lee um, is actually on a quest for revenge. And the rest of them kind of get uh, caught up in that. It's a good story. Like it's a good concept for a story. Um, as the movie goes out of its way to note, um, roughly a third of all historical cowboys were black, um, and that is that is not something that the average uh, moviegoer would be aware of, just based on um, the old west as presented through Hollywood. Um, and in addition to ha- having that that good bit of representation, um, the other thing I really liked about this movie was like I don't know. The the Spanish American War is one of those wars that like isn't really in a lot of movies, um, at least not in a lot of contemporary movies. And uh, starting it there and using that as the impetus to get the plot going, um, in addition to bringing in some very real historical drama that happened, um, it kind of like really varied up the whole the the settings and like it provided the structure for like a quest oh they start in Cuba then they go to New Orleans and then they go farther west and farther west. It made it a lot more visually. Uh, visually varied yeah for sure i mean it's just a wild uh time to start a western too 1898 mm-hmm. is pretty late i mean yeah you know yeah. the western expansion of course begins well before the civil war but the time that we think of as western history you know the, the western films mostly take place right after the civil war whereas this takes place right during the Spanish-American War. So, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um, and I can't think of another film that takes place during the Spanish-American War. And, and like you said, especially a contemporary film. Yeah, um, oh, for sure. So we have a review here by uh, oh, Roger God. Ebert. The other, other, other nemesis of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got, we've got a rogues gallery of them. We do. You know, this review, there's some things that, I think we agree with, but um, what stands out with this review for me before we even get into it and what stands out for the majority of um, popular film criticism is just like how apolitical the reviewers yeah. are. Um, or ostensibly apolitical. Or ostensibly apolitical or how or how they, they just, they would prefer to be apolitical. Yes. Um, so... Let's read this and then we can discuss that a little bit more. So Roger Ebert writes, The underlying story of Posse is one that needs to be told, about an American West that was populated not just by white cowboys, but also by blacks who rode the range, were lawmen and outlaws, and ruled themselves in their own black townships. 
The story needs to be told, but unfortunately, that is what director Mario Van Peebles does not do in Posse. This is an over-directed, over-photographed, overdone movie that is so distracted by its hectic, relentless style that the storyline is rendered almost incoherent. The camera never stands still when it can circle. A shot is never held if it can, if it can be intercut with other shots. And the dialogue exists so uneasily with the overdone surround sound effects that at times it's hard to understand the words. Posse closes with solemn end titles concluding that white America mistreated its black citizens then and now. We even learn what percentage of the national wealth is currently in African-American hands. I guess the sloganeering is an attempt to provide the film with a meaning that its story fails to deliver. Uh, so Ebert is canceled. Um, he's, uh, <laughs> he's against uh, reparations, uh, which Procon is definitely 100% behind. Hell yeah. Um, to all minority populations of this, of this fucking yeah. country. If, you, if your um, question is, who do we give it to? Just everybody. Fuck literally it. everybody. Like, literally everybody. Like doesn't have like fam- like family wealth basically. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that. What's frustrating about this this little excerpt here is I I agree in the sense that a lot of it's overdone, a lot of it's overshot, um, it's very overstylized. Um, but the more I think about it, like that makes me remember this movie a lot more than than just like a a, a simple workman like kind of journeyman product would have been. Um, I don't like a lot of the creative choices that a lot of the creative camera work that was done, but, um, but like, damn, if it's not memorable, like (laughs) that's kind of like the point of this, of this show, right? We're trying to find memorable bad shit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I agree. When I was watching this film, um, there are some sequences that are more, let's say frenetically edited than I would prefer them to be. Um, it's just some of the choices of when to cut and uh, how often I maybe wouldn't have done that myself. Um, but, you know, it's the 90s. Everybody's doing it, honestly. This movie was very 90s, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> like just... it's, it's very 90s, sometimes to its detriment. Sometimes sometime to its benefit. Right, sometimes to its benefit. I mean, you have some amazing character actors and just people who, like, aren't actors you know you have a lot of like r&b and 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 rap artists in this movie um and they do great so yeah it's it's just a strange film and i don't think anybody was prepared for this film even though they should have been i mean like it is in the black exploitation tradition it's nothing like we haven't seen before and that whole bit at the end of of ebert's review about um why sloganeering is bad and and you you had touched on it earlier when you said that that this review in particular, but reviews of the time um, tried to cleave to, to some notion of, of being apolitical. That That's a very 90s affect, too. That That's what I was thinking yeah. when, when we were reading this this little bit here. Um, I think the 90s was uh, just the right time in history for a reviewer like Roger Ebert and others who are still in the business, who are super apolitical, Um this film comes out in 1993, so um, Bill Clinton was just elected in 1993. And, and that was the end of history. As, as and it was the end said. of history. Um, right, exactly. For our younger listeners out there, <laughs> uh, Francis Fukuyama was, a, was an economist who wrote a book literally called The End of History, postulating that like the, the neoliberal um, attitude and, and, and consensus of the time would would like render all other politics uh moot and obsolete 
and yeah, the the nineties, like what I can remember of the nineties, and and what I can see now of the media of the nineties, that that kind of weird unearned arrogance does does come through a lot. Um, in Ebert, Roger Ebert's like approach to film and art is is really representative of that attitude. Yeah, for sure. But then there's someone like our boy Jonathan Rosenbaum, who yeah. his whole career is pushing back on the Roger Eberts of this world. Yeah. Um, and they both lived in Chicago. They wrote. They both wrote for Chicago um, publications. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote for uh, uh, Rosenbaum wrote for the Chicago Reader, and then Ebert wrote for the Chicago Sun Times. Chicago Crap Times. That <laughs> <laughs> so they they should have had a, a showdown at High Noon. Like they should street. have, yeah, for sure. Um, well, one is still alive and one is dead. So. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, um, I can kind of link in here nicely to um, one of my, the only loathsome content that I could think of for this movie. Um, I grabbed a screenshot, which we'll include in the show notes, and we'll tweet it out, and we'll put it on Facebook and all that crap. Um, there, there's a really cool perspective, um, camera low to the ground, um, literally at like at ankle height of um, of a showdown in this movie, like like a high noon showdown in the middle of town. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesse Lee is approaching. He's far far in the background, and in the immediate foreground is um, the boot of the of the racist sheriff that he's come to shoot. Um, and it's a very cool shot. Like it's you know it's it, it's basic western framing, like a huge uh, huge skyline, the the horizon off in the distance, the the lone gunslinger coming uh, approaching. But it's well done. Um, but my problem with the shot is that it's, it's literally on screen for like half a second. Um, and, and, and it's really emblematic of the frenetic editing and pacing of this movie. I had to like rewind the film a couple times just so I could pause in the right second to catch it and get the screenshot. I guess my, my biggest problem with this movie is I, I wish it was a little bit longer. Um, so a lot of the sequences could have more time to breathe. That that's, I, I really do think this movie would be better received if, um, if all of the character beats had more time to develop. You know, I think it could be the same 111 minutes it is, but if they just, like, reallocate their time, basically. Um, That's true. I think there's, like, some sequences that go on too long or some sequences that don't have to be there. Um, and then there's some things that they could focus more on. Um, even in, in, in um, just to piggyback off what you were saying about these interesting shots that are kind of wasted, there's a lot of Western callbacks like that one. Um, for instance, one of the, the posse members who they pick up later um, at a brothel when um, little Jay is gambling, this guy, Father Time, who's, you know, this oh, yeah. um, very posh looking guy who um he always carries his pocket watch and he every time he opens the pocket watch it plays this tune so you know that's a reference to lee van cleef in the spaghetti western for a few dollars more Um, i didn't even think of that but that yeah that's totally a shout out but like in that movie lee van cleef has this pocket watch that plays this tune because it was like his sister's pocket watch and like his sister was murdered and like it just reminds him about like his revenge quest in this movie, like it, it's meaningless. Like I thought, like oh, is Father Time gonna have like this other narrative? It's a gimmick. Yeah, it's, it's just a, a gimmick. It's... You know, it's like you should have done something with that. Come on, yeah. what was the point? And and this is a minor complaint, but but it can kind of flow into what we like about the movie because I, even though it's a minor complaint, I, I do like a lot of this aspect. Um, a lot of these characters, they're they're basically like cartoon characters, right? Like they all they all represent archetypes. Um, western archetypes you have you have the cool leader who's like always on top of shit he he respects his men and he's he's kind of he's kind of like 
cold and removed, but he's still a human and he's badass and all that stuff. You have his like his big guy, the enforcer guy, who's like yeah. his whole his whole personality is literally he's just big. What was his name? Abodo, I think. Uh, Abobo, I think. Abobo, yeah. yeah. Um, his whole personality is he's like the big softy, but he's like really strong. Um, and then you have the the nerdy guy. <laughs> oh yeah, Weezy. Weezy. Yeah, Weezy is great. Yeah, Weezy the sex pest Weezy, who's super horny. <laughs> <laughs> super horny. Yeah. He um he was like Colonel Graham's like he was a guy who just like got tea for him like there's this joke throughout that he's from the more tea sir tribe right the whole um, the racist joke about the really racist yeah. joke about that and then but he's also he's an interesting character because he's like the he's like the Western romantic as well because like he's always reading yeah. like Western serial like dime store novels. Uh, and then later in the film, he's like, this sucks. Like, being a cat <laughs> was is... fucking awful. <laughs> yeah, he, he's the most fleshed out of, of the posse, I think, outside of Jesse. Um, he, he has those those different elements, contradictory and, like, in conflicting elements of his character going on. In, in a good way. I mean, that... Yeah. Um, uh, little, the aforementioned Little J, Stephen Baldwin, who's um, the token white guy in this movie. And he's... Or the token white guy of the posse. Yeah, no, but he he's he's pretty good. Like they, this was very '90s too. But between him and Father Time, um, there's like this. They have like this competitiveness going on between their because they're both gamblers and like they both like right. they both joke with each other. And there's this one scene, um, very '90s energy. Father Time, they, they have to go through like Apache Indian grounds to like to to make it to the town or they're going to or whatever. And Father Time's like, oh well, the the Indians don't care about black guys, but our our buddy Little Jay here might get killed. And Little Jay's like, well, I didn't personally enslave anyone. What, yeah. what did I do? Like I, and, and they they banter about like the idea of like racial guilt, and they banter about the idea of like individual sins, like racist sins versus collective racist sins. And um, it doesn't get too bad, but it it was very like th- this is end of history approach to to racial dynamics. Yeah, I um. That was, uh, yeah, I feel like that was just for the white people. Like, they were like, you know what? We need, like, some white people to watch this movie, and we got to throw him a bone here with this little Jay, uh, you know, waxing poetic about how he's not guilty of racism. But for all that, the little Jay character is pretty good. Um, I, I found him compelling. Like, he, he was, I, I was kind of sad when he died. Um, yeah. I, I guess the racial dynamics of this movie can kind of lead me to the 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 educational term I wanted to use for this episode, which is historical revisionism. Um, Not, not Dr. Nick. Tell us Dr. Nick. Yes, exactly. Um, This isn't, this is more of a general academic term more than one specifically related to film, but it certainly applies to film in many cases. The term revisionism as it's used in a colloquial sense in an everyday sense, um, people tend to think that it's a bad thing. Like, the term evokes ideas of like agitprop or propaganda or something. Um, you, you think of like Holocaust revisionism that, that when it's used in that context, it's, it's definitely a negative thing. When the, when the term was first uh, used and when it's mostly used in academic circles, um, it simply means a way of reinterpreting the historical record, not necessarily with an agenda insofar as like an agenda to push, I don't know, like, like, his like Holocaust denial is, is the classic example, but to question the orthodoxy of um of what is seen as the historical record, like 
the, the second most well-known example that people would know is um, the death toll under Stalin. Um, the death toll under Stalin's Russia, when uh, American anti-communism was first being pushed really hard in this country, the death toll that everyone knows is oh, like, oh, 20 million people died under Stalin, 20 million people died under Stalin. Um, but then uh, a reassessment of the historical record, the historical revisionist approach, um, found out that it was closer to three to nine million. So not not to be tanky and play Stalin apologetics, but that that's just but in, we're doing it, folks. But yeah, we're pro concern and tanky, folks. Um, but I, I simply use that example um, as like one of the more well known um, examples of the value of historical revisionism because it by continuing by continually um, questioning history, history history is a living thing, right? Like it, it needs to be continuously. Uh, challenged and requestioned and um, and reexamined, we can more closely determine what actually happened, and we can more more dynamically examine the historical record. and um, And there is value in that. that That is that is what historical revisionism revisionism is. And it does come out here in this movie. Like the what what Ebert claims is is the bad the the sloganeering of this movie. It did teach me something. I, I didn't know that a third of uh, all American cowboys were black. I knew that a fair number of them were, but I didn't know that it was that many. I didn't know that they were operating as late as the Spanish-American War. Well, I, I guess the Buffalo Soldiers thing. But um, yeah, I don't know. There, there is value in historical revisionism and sloganeering. So uh, fuck you, Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> as always, uh, fuck you, Roger Ebert. But yeah, um Definitely. So historical revisionism, as you said, is an is an academic term and uh, academic discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, in in terms of uh, you know the old West history, there was in the nineteen eighties uh, an academic right. um, movement called New Western History. So it just talked more about race, class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, how actually the West wasn't just incredibly lawless and, you know, it wasn't about rugged individualism. It is actually about like government subsidy, um, and government regulation, um, and government expansion. People should check out the professor Patricia Nelson Limerick. Um, she wrote, um, several books on, on this exact topic. Um, one of them is called the legacy of conquest. Uh, highly recommend it. Go out there. If you, uh, want to know more, about um, you know black cowboys, Mexican cowboys, um, the the Native American populations, um, what what women contributed to um, the the founding of the Old West. Um, yeah, really interesting stuff. Um, that you know we don't get all of it in this film, but we get these these moments of of this in the film. Yeah, for sure. There there are touchstones and there are references here and. Um... Anyone with any academic, like any kind of historical curiosity at all, um, would be inspired to look up the stuff from this movie. Um, so yeah, this I don't know. Posse, Posse is growing on me. I, it, it left me kind of cold when I first saw it, um, the presentation. But the, the more I think back on it, it, it is I am warming up to it. Yeah, um, you know, it puts your uh, it puts your feet to the fire. I think. Mm, uh. Yes. <laughs> Just uh, roasting, the, roasting those beans, uh, uh, if you will. Um, <laughs> yes. um, so yeah, enough about this boring shit. Uh, onto the onto the plot recap. Um, like we said earlier, it's it starts in Cuba. Um, Jesse Lee is like they they say he he was sentenced to the army for life, which I don't know is a real sentence. Oh, yeah, I was, that was suspicious. I was like, mm, 
I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but whatever, it works. He, the point is, he's in the army and he he can't leave. Um, and his, his squad that he's in charge of that most of them die, but the surviving ones become his posse. Um, and his commanding officer is is uh, played by Billy Zane. And what's his name? Um, Colonel Graham. Colonel Graham. He's literally more so than Jar Jar Binks is Dan Crenshaw in this movie because <laughs> complete buffoon, complete racist asshole. Um, he gets an eye patch halfway through. Um, when we meet him, he's having his his portrait painted on the yeah. battlefield. Yeah, on the battlefield. Like, and that's what in I mean when I say this movie's a cartoon because like it's not subtle. And like J- Jesse Lee is fighting on the front lines, and then he runs back to the command tent to like to talk to Colonel Graham. He runs like fifty yards. And then, like Colonel Graham is standing there <laughs> with his with his knee up on like a barrel and like his his hands on his hips, and li- like there's a, there's a portrait artist literally painting him like that. And he's like, hmm, yes. Uh, I always say that you could tell a man's uh, a man's character from his profile. <laughs> it's like, we get it. He's a he's a racist classist asshole. We get it. Um, yeah, th- there is some actually inspired uh, editing and shots and just like little visual tics in that scene though like um characters uh just like in concert doing the same thing like a bunch of characters like pointing guns at like jesse lee or something like Mm -hmm. very cartoony very like almost like exactly like shit you'd see in like looney tunes like just barrels of guns like coming out of nowhere just like pointing at one character but cartoony in a way that works though like yeah within within the the mood of the film it kind of all just it rolls along nicely um Another one is when we meet uh, little Jay. He, he's in he's in the stockades for like being a de- like a degenerate gambler or something. And he's of course he's gambling with the other prisoners. Uh, and there's one shot. One of the prisoners has glasses and he's holding his cards up to oh, his face. Yeah, yeah. And we see from little Jay's perspective that he can see the guy's cards through the reflection of his glasses. <laughs> yeah. And so he yeah, knows he, just a lot of he knows great visual ticks like that. Um, yeah. So from there. Um, some convoluted stuff happens and they, they have to desert the army. Um, they, but they, they desert with gold that they, they, they steal from the Cubans. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the, uh, the inciting incident. Um, Colonel Graham tells them, Hey, go like sneak up on these Cubans and uh, take something from them. He doesn't tell them what specifically, but it turns out to be gold, you know, just like chests and chests full of gold. Right. Um, and they try to escape with the gold, uh, and then Colonel Graham does catch up to them. Uh, they have a small shootout where I think that's when Colonel Graham loses his eye. I think he gets shot in the eye in that moment. He gets shot in the eye, and, and he loses it there. Um, we also meet his mini-boss character. The, the oh, joke, my God. The, this guy who looks... I'll, I'll let Lewis take this because it's, it's his favorite video game. <laughs> Yeah, so there's this like albino looking dude who has long flowing white hair. Um he has like shirt sleeves. He's like dual wielding shotguns, like they're double barreled dual wielding shotguns. And that's uh, like Gerald, he has two swords on his back. Yeah, so he looks exactly like Geralt of Rivia Geralt, from yeah. the series The Witcher. Yes. <laughs> He he just screams mini boss because like he he does the dirty work for Billy Zane and like he he's he's an efficient tracker and like he he's good at killing people, um and he lasts throughout most of the movie so like yeah I don't know he he's just he's just a memorable memorable uh, little side character there oh and this is where um this is where members of the posse start to die off because like there are some like name nameless characters in the posse 
like like there's a priest or something yeah i think he did that one dies in this scene yeah there, even, there's yeah. a priest he, he has a priest collar and then when they're doing the night raid on the cubans he he kills someone they makes the sign of the cross um but he dies when billy zane and and Geralt catch up um in like the, the the posse goes from like 12 people to like six like at the start of the movie um, yeah i was surprised by that um yeah, it's just throughout, basically after every big gunfight, we lose, from here on out, we lose one or two. In the beginning, like you said, we lose almost half the posse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I, was, I wasn't I was expecting that. I thought like we'd have, you know, all 12 guys throughout this movie, but that'd be a lot of characters to have to establish. So um, Yeah, but I, I appreciate how ruthless it was for a Hollywood movie. Um Hollywood movies, like genre pieces like this, usually only kill off like one or two instead of like sparing one or two of a group of characters. So like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It it was um it was it was the ruthlessness was appreciated. Yeah, definitely um makes sense thematically with a western as well. Yeah, so. and with a with a quote unquote revisionist western too. Um, right. But yeah, then they they smuggle their way to New Orleans. Um, they they hide in the coffins of dead dead American soldiers, disrespecting the troops. Disrespecting the troops. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, I guess they are troops, so it's like they're allowed to. But they're good troops because they they uh, they go AWOL. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, if you're a troop listening to this, go AWOL, please. Yes, yes, please. Uh, we 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 don't hate you, troops. Just um, reclaim your humanity. Do the. Yeah, for sure. Um. um but yeah, so this film kind of like, um. Before this sequence in Cuba ends, like there is some mention of like American imperialism because like they just talk about the war itself. So like one character talks about um, they were stationed in Manila in the Philippines, they mm. were stationed in Nicaragua, and uh, like we said, th- this portion takes place in Cuba. So like there is some understanding that like the Spanish Amer- of this just some understanding of the Spanish American War that it was like this multi theater right. of war um, right. that was the beginning of american empire now of course they don't say that explicitly they're not like oh we took over manila and yeah. like you know we now have you know guantanamo bay and yada 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 but like it was uh is a somewhat you know acknowledgement and uh to, con- to connect this to contemporary politics um the spanish american war was started when the uss maine sunk and it was falsely right. claimed that the spanish did that um which is very similar to the situation happening with Iran and the Japanese oil tanker, which was falsely claimed to have been attacked by um, the Iranian Air Force, um, which to date, as of this recording, has so far been denied by like literally every other, every other, um, every other mouthpiece besides the American government. So, right. Um, I mean, even the owners of the Japanese oil tanker were like, "Nah, it didn't happen the way right. the Americans are saying it happened." <laughs> right. All of which is to say. Uh, um, Leveraging uh, maritime tragedies for political purposes um, has has continued strongly into this uh, into into today uh, over over 150 years over 100 years later. Hey, um, you know you can't knock America for being consistent. Yeah. Yes. Uh, anyway, so the posse gets to uh, they get to Nola, and um, it it is like the most stereotypical like cartoony depiction of new orleans because like oh for sure it's it's like in the middle of mardi gras straight out of straight out of like <laughs> yeah, a cartoon it just like so happened get to be exactly on mardi gras <laughs> drunken people are like wandering the streets shooting guns into the air there's there's like 
people in, in like masquerade costumes. There's fireworks going off in the street and above the buildings and everything. There are like prostitutes hanging around and soliciting everyone in sight. There's um, just open bottles of, of alcohol everywhere and people are like stumbling and having a good time. It, it's it's fun. It sets the mood correctly. Yeah, and then they actually go to a brothel, and then the majority of the action in this scene happens within the brothel. Yeah, and that's that's where they meet Father Time. They it, it's kind of like a video, like a like an RPG. Like they pick up characters along the yeah, way. Yeah, like, <laughs> they really do. They they pick up Father Time, and he's um his whole thing is like he he's very fancy, and he's a gambler, and he has the watch, um, and he calls himself Father Time. I don't. I mean, it's kind of just like an affectation, but I, they, didn't, they never really describe why he calls. Oh no, it's just like a line of dialogue. I think he's like, "Cause you can't beat time." Yeah, which is which is um, like a as as far as like random arbitrary nicknames nicknames go, that's not bad. But like you were saying with the whole stopwatch, they could have given him like a reason for being so obsessed with that, right? Like some tragedy exactly. in his past or whatever. Yeah, no, it's nothing. I mean, they just. They had to throw a more colorful character in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's great. I mean, I do appreciate him. I think he's a, he's a museum musician as well, I think. Yeah. The that, actual actor. Yeah. That guy. Is that Big Daddy Kane? Yeah, that's Big Daddy Kane. Yeah, I think he, he's a rapper and a musician. And um, and he has done other acting roles. We can we can add that to the show notes if we want to. But um, I, I did like the dynamic between him and Little J. Like, they're, they, they represent, like, the weird, like, desperation and the the euphoria of gambling and they talk about that kind of um in in their interactions and they neither of them are like overly sentimental characters but they kind of like start to grow on each other despite that um and just, i don't know just a very like textured dynamic that i wasn't expecting between the two of them yeah it's kind of a callback to the other um westerns you know like sundance uh, um, butch guys sundance kid yep. you know this like yep. buddy uh, film dynamic um for sure there's a great line that uh father time says to little jay after oh, they, yes. uh, they gamble together for the first time and they're talking about like their gambling strategies and little jay's just like i like to gamble so then i can make money and to gamble again if i lose it whatever who cares um so father time says to him <laughs> you sure is the kind that'll fart in the bathtub and then turn around and bite the fucking bubble <laughs> <laughs> hell yes it's the best line in this whole movie. <laughs> and then um, they get accused of cheating, so they start they they run away back to the the hotel room they have. Oh, and I mean, also going while it's, while all this is going on, Jesse had ridden out of town. Um, he said he had business, and I forget what he does. He just he's not in New Orleans while they're gambling and partying. Right. Yeah. He he continues west, and then they meet up with him later. Yeah, but like the cr- crucially, he's not in New Orleans when dan crenshaw um catches up to them right and the way that happens like god this movie has has so much going on it has so much shoved into every little little set piece like to its to its detriment but also to its benefit because like um the gamblers who caught father time cheating catch up to them in their hotel room and they confront them and then everyone has guns drawn and father time pulls out his watch and he says he says like tiktok tiktok and it's presented as like this ominous thing, like he's he's going to sh- kill them or something. But then the other gamblers are shot in the back by Billy Zane, right? Who's <laughs> who's disguised in a masquerade costume? And oh then yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's like this like like Latin he's like chanting. Big, uh, he's like big like bloodborne energy there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
and, and it's like Latin, like chanting over the background. It's like really ominous. And um, Father Time, Wheezy, and Little Jay all escape. But one of the other posse members, I think his name's Angel, gets killed. Angel dies. He gets there. Cut. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it, it's very much like a like a comic book, like raising the stakes with like stronger and stronger villains. But it it, it just a lot shoved into that little sequence. Um, and, and, and the whole time, like Mardi Gras music is go- is like being played in the background, and like fireworks are going off outside. It's just like a lot going on. Every time I think of this film, I'm not like I don't really go back to that scene very much, but just like hearing you describe it, it is like a really well done set piece. Yeah, it is. I like um, I liked it, but I just like I guess like there's there's so much even in the last thirty minutes of that film that I keep coming back to that I like you. Mm-hmm. It's easy to forget about everything that happens in the New Orleans scene, right? But um. It's great. Everything's great. This movie's a masterpiece. Uh, <laughs> fuck everybody who thinks otherwise. Yeah. Um, they catch up to Jesse, and then they ride farther and farther west. And, like, it immediately... There's snow on the ground. Um, oh, yeah. So, like, I don't know if that's, like... Oh, no. I have no idea where they actually, like, end up. I have no idea where... Um, when they get to the town of Freemanville, I have no idea where that's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, before they get to Freemanville, they they see the intercon- the Transcontinental Railroad... Um, being built they they pass right. like a work camp because they the film again to the film's credit they they show a bunch of chinese american um, workers um and like displaced native americans literally, literally right next to the the train train tracks being built which is historically accurate um yeah. it's the only time we see um yeah the, the chinese immigrants in the film so there there are no chinese immigrants who are actual characters in the movie mm-hmm. um so that's that's one thing I would say in terms of its representation. Um, it could do a little better, but you know, but I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll still give it a pass because it does so well with basically everything else. <laughs> and I guess like that's that's not really the focus of this movie. The focus is right, specifically sure. on the African American Buffalo soldiers and the African American cowboys. Um, but they do have a Native American character who has lines sure. of dialogue and and like a there's a a reason for him to be in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, now they, you know, they still make a point that like, you know, the cheap labor, the cheap labor of the Chinese immigrants, like, you know, the land that was taken from the native Americans, like that is, there's a solidarity in that struggle with like, you know, the, the, Af- the African American, um, Buffalo soldiers and, you know, just former slaves who, uh, now are able to, you know, own property and live yeah. in the West, basically. Um, so, you know, it's basically just like one or two lines of dialogue, but like they do, they go out of their way to say it, which is nice. You don't hear that a lot in literally any film. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, also for a 90s Western, the, the very fact that they showed like the Chinese American um, immigrants working and building this railroad, like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, this is an absurd example, but I'm just thinking of something like Wild Wild West, which came out three years after this right. movie, like or shortly after <laughs> this movie, um, sure. in 1999. Like the the God, we'll have to do Wild Wild West because that movie is dog shit. But I, I remember that movie way too much. <laughs> the The president of that movie is Ulysses S. Grant, and um, a plot point is that he completes the Transcontinental Railroad, which happened. But like it's just like oh it's this grand thing connecting our our, our shores together and like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hammer home the last uh, stake and it's made of gold and like that's that and um, it's just presented as like this good thing instead of like literally laying the tracks of colonialism, right? Yeah, but this exactly. movie avoids that to, to to some degree, which is nice. So yeah, they they get to the town and like in, intercut with the whole uh, 
current day plot up to this point, we get a lot of flashbacks, Jesse Lee's flashbacks of when his father was killed. His father was a preacher who tried to, um, oh God, they, they, they write this on the, on the, above the doors of the church. What is it? Education is, is freedom. I think it's like education is free. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, they, they write that above the, the door to his church and like they, the town sprouts up beside the church and like it's presented as like this really great thing. Um, but then his father's killed because is it just cause like he, he was being like uppity or something and like the, the, the racists didn't really like that or something. I think it's ba- yeah, basically because he was trying to make um, like his own town or an, an homestead. people. Yeah. yeah. And educate black people. Um, it's, it is eventually made as it's the, the last town we get to in, in this film is called Freemanville. Um, and yeah, so he is, he is murdered. He is lynched by the KKK, um, who are actually lawmen, um, yep. which is, uh, yep. you know, that's another, uh, consistency in American history. Uh, mm. <laughs> the KKK is, uh, still full of, uh, lawmen. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so. and, uh, yeah. And, um, that, that's the whole impetus that, that Jesse was, was chasing. Um, and that's the reason he got the gold because he, he wants to rebuild the town. He wants to, um. He wants to complete his father's dream. That's what it's presented as. Right. Yeah. And he doesn't know that um, his father's dream has already come to fruition, basically. Um, it is a thriving community, a, a black community um, called Freemanville. Um, as we said before, like there's um, the, the father from Family Matters is the barber. Um, there's um, Isaac Hayes, the, the, the voice of chef from South Park. Is, he's a shop owner, I think. Yeah, he's a shop owner named Cable. Yep. Um, there's other, there's like, there's a church, there's, you know, there's a sheriff um, played by Blair Underwood. Um, he's been in a ton of TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the last set piece of the film. Also, Jesse Lee's, place. his love interest, um, what was her name? Right, uh, Lana. Lana. Was and, and was she Native American or was she like... like... Half, I think, like half Native American, half black. Because her, her father is, is the character Papa Joe, right. which is played by Melvin Van Peebles. Yeah, but it, yeah, she's definitely meant to be like half Native American because like she, she wears like buckskin dress in, in, in her home. There's, there's like all stereotypical Native American shit hanging on the walls and stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, and I guess throughout, like, so at some point, Jesse does meet up with the rest of the, the rest of the posse meets up with Jesse before they get to Freemanville. Um, they meet like just, you know, somewhere on the plains. Um, and they do like, they watch him kill a few other random people. Um, right. And we don't know why, except there's like these, um, these flesh, uh, these flashback scenes intercut and they're like in sepia tone. Um, and, and also they're introduced with that real, that stock sound effect of like flames whooshing, like, whoosh. oh, yeah. <laughs> like every, I, I can't, I can't approximate with my, with my, with my voice, but like everyone knows it. It's just like that whoosh sound effect. That's in every, that's in everything. It's pretty great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he just like, he starts off by um, having a blacksmith, um, smelt the gold uh, down and then like make it into just gold bars but like the last few pieces of gold he wants uh the blacksmith to make into six uh bullets yep gold bullets because they explain in um in, in in the voodoo beliefs in in new orleans um you need gold you need to kill um evil spirits with gold to, to make sure they stay dead yeah so um but then jesse like 
kills the blacksmith because uh, and, he was one of the racist people that killed his father yeah and yeah. we we learned that through like a quick you know yeah. little flashback um but the rest of the posse is like what the fuck <laughs> jesse just killed the blacksmith we made him work all day and then we fucking capped him <laughs> it's really like that's how i play like red dead redemption <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay if they're members of the kkk that that's yeah. that's justified yeah send right. them to the gulag exactly. and work them to the <laughs> this is the tanky episode um that's it really is. but yeah the the freeman the freemanville uh sequence is like the last bit of this movie um the 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 sheriff there the black sheriff carver carter carver yeah carver, yeah he's carver just, with carver yeah he, he's jesse's friend from childhood and it's revealed that um, he has been instigating a lot of the racist, a lot of the KKK attacks on local shop owners. Um, so the shop owners will leave. Um, basically, his, his plot is to do that. So everyone leaves so that they, he can sell or so he can own the land for when the railroad comes through. Yeah, because when everybody leaves, they just sell him the the deed to their land yeah and and they think that he's doing them a favor because like he he's he's being he's like the 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 last black man that will stay and like in, in in the face of the kkk but he's leveraging that to to get their land for when the the railroad does come through and the, and the prices skyrocket yeah so we we meet um sheriff bates i think is his name um, who is played by Richard Jordan, who, um, you know, it's not a name that would be familiar to people um, just if you say it, but he's he's been a character actor forever. Um, he's in one of my favorite films, um, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is uh, yeah. a, a Boston gangster movie starring Robert Mitchum. And Richard Jordan plays, I believe he plays like the FBI agent, who is working with Robert Mitchum's gangster character to like, you know, catch some okay. other gangsters in a sting operation. Um, but he's just like, he has like this very like angular, very like weaselly face. Um, and he's like a, he's a perfect racist. Like he's just like, he's the perfect person just like on facial features yep. alone. If we're going to do some, you know, like phrenology, <laughs> <laughs> reverse phrenology to find out reverse if you're racist or not jesus uh and to be fair billy zane is too he gives me that vibe um yeah he has very oh, waspy definitely. like mm, no uh, know your place you inferiors kind of kind of vibe yeah oh no he does that really well um yeah so um carver and sheriff bates team up because you know if you even if you're black and uh, like capital if you can get your hands on capital mm-hmm. um you will exploit other people like it just happens yeah and um yeah the 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 secret villain the hidden villain this movie has like three villains there's there's the sheriff there's um carter and then there's there's billy zane um right but like the the main it besides like the personal vendetta of, of billy zane the main villain is um it, the motivation is capital the motivation is um yep is accrual of not not only capital but specifically like land ownership yeah um definitely. which it, which is fucked and bad folks um, yeah but it's crazy to see in a western you know yeah. like you don't really i don't think i can't think of any other westerns where like the main thrust is like the idea of capital and westward expansion even though like that 
you would think is baked into the genre. It's just most of the time, most Westerns are all about these petty squabbles Very personal. between yeah. a black hat and a white hat, mm-hmm. you know, individual, basically. Um, yeah, so that in, in this movie does that, but it also does the, the land ownership is evil. <laughs> so kudos. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's at, it's at this point that uh, Jesse Lee reconnects. Oh, what's her name again? I keep forgetting her name. Lana? Lana, yeah. Jesse Lee reconnects with Lana at this point. Um, they they fall in love again, um, even though she she's like supposed to marry uh, Carter. Um, and then the sheriff keeps showing up, and this is the part where uh, Little Jay dies because um, yes. the, the the sheriff is is being abusive, and um, him and him and him, him and his posse are just being racist to to everyone that's gathered in the saloon playing cards and and having sex with prostitutes and stuff. Um, but little Jay steps up to defend Wheezy, I think. Yeah, it, it's specifically Wheezy. I think it's Wheezy. Because, uh, when he's beaten to death, Wheezy's like, no one's ever, like, stood up for me like that before. And, right. and, and Wheezy places one of his dime store books on little Jay's grave. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a nice little beat there. Um, and then Jesse, once he finds out that this happened, he and the posse get ready to leave. Um, does it say where they're just like trying to like get the hell out of town? I don't think it says where they're going exactly, but they're just like we're get we're yeah we're gonna get the yeah. fuck out of Dodge. Yeah, but then of course Jesse has he feels responsible, so he he goes back to the town um, because the, it, everyone in town knows at this point that the sheriff is just literally trying to like bulldoze the town and, and kill everyone with, with his with his like overtly KKK uh, members. Yeah, and at this point, like um, they actually do dress like the kkk yeah because um scene. because lana's father and oboto are are captured by the sheriff right when when little jay is killed and then they're thrown in jail and then um the the jailers um are confronted by kkk members enter the jail and confront the jailers and they're like let us kill these black people and um and one of the jailers is like, you can't do that. And the other jailer is like, I don't care. I'm racist. This shit's like, this is fine. They're doing our job for us. And then the KKK lifts up his hood and it's Jesse. Yeah, it's but Jesse Lee. And he badass. shoots the racist guy. Yeah. And the racist guy actually is another one of the uh, members of the, the group who killed his father, I believe. Yeah, he, he's like one of the last ones besides the sheriff that, that happens. Yeah, to, besides yeah. the sheriff. Yeah. And then later... Um, when they leave with a Bobo and um, Papa Joe, the actual KKK comes yes. in. They take their hoods off. They're Sheriff Bates yep. and, and the his, remainder of, of his, his deputies. Uh, crew. Yeah, his deputies. Um, and they're like, what the fuck? What happened here? Yeah, and then, and they, then they, they kill, kill the, the other mayor. jailer. Yeah. yeah, they kill the other jailer. Because he's not racist enough. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, they, everyone tries to get out of Dodge, but then Jesse feels a pang of conscience. So he and he and Lana and and Lana's father go back to Freemanville, and um, they're like, "Oh, we're gonna stay. We're gonna fight. We're gonna we're not gonna let them take this town away from us." And uh, it was real, um, uh, real vibes of uh, like Magnificent Seven, which or, or Seven Samurai, yeah. you know. Um, mm-hmm. Just we we the the poor townsfolk got to defend their their what, what, what little they have from the oncoming horde of of marauders yeah and we should say that um before that happens uh sheriff bates uh does meet colonel graham because colonel graham and his crew finally catch up with 
Jesse Lee yeah. and, they, and Colonel Graham and Sheriff Bates yeah. uh, form an alliance. F- form an alliance. Yeah. And then um, Sheriff Bates and his deputies run into town, but then all the townsfolk start. It's it's like this really ex- long and extended shootout that goes on for like twenty minutes, honestly, and it's it's cool. Yeah. Like the, it's a cool set piece. It just lots of guns are fired, lots of shit blows up, lots of people die, um, everyone shoots each other, and just when the townsfolk are winning and Sheriff Bates and his deputies are on the ropes and like most of them are dead, then um, Colonel Colonel Crenshaw, um, Colonel, <laughs> Colonel Billy Zane Crenshaw, Jar Jar Banks, uh, swoops in. <laughs> With his with his um, regiment, and they have like a covered wagon. Yeah, they have a covered wagon, and this is another reference to another spaghetti western, mm-hmm. uh, the Clint Eastwood film "Fistful of Dollars," yep. directed by Sergio Leone. Yep. Um, in that film, there's a scene. Um, it's like by a riverside. There's this covered wagon. A soldier takes off the covering, and underneath is a Gatling gun. Yep. So that that happens in this film. Um, I think. I'm not sure. No, it's not Geralt of Rivia. It's some other like nameless, faceless goon. Like, yeah, pulls down the covering, yeah. and there's a Gatling gun. Um, so that's like that's very much like a mini boss fight, there, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and that's like a long and storied tradition in in westerns. Like the edge of like industrialized and, and like faceless technology, of like versus the lone skill of like the cowboy using in like a more antiquated piece of of technology like a lot of weight is given to jesse lee's um his guns like you have to cock it every time and then shoot it cock it every time and shoot it and like they they pit his his skill with that weapon with like the ease um of slaughter that a that a gatling gun can provide an unskilled person um so that's very much like a again from fistful of dollars that that's taken that's lifted right from the man with no name versus the uh the guy that has the rifle in that movie right yeah and you know even within this film in the this the story that bookends the film, where Woody Schrode is talking to two modern day reporters, mm-hmm. it's one of the first lines of dialogue. He even says, "He's like back in my day, you'd have to you know cock the pistol and pull the trigger, uh, cock and pull the trigger." Uh, but nowadays, you know, you have all this these guns that just spray bullets with one pull. I think that's a it's a Colt forty five, right? I don't remember. Uh, no, I think um, Jesse Lee has two guns throughout the film, and I think the last one is a Remington 1875. I looked that up on uh, Internet Firearm Database, <laughs> which is which is a pretty neat. It's a pretty fun uh, wiki. Um, yeah, it's a great resource for this exact moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, just the the whole the whole set piece, the whole battle. The ending battle is really fun. Um, how do they defeat the Gatling gun? Um, oh yeah, Jesse, Jesse, dynamite. Jesse Lee jumps on a horse. He puts a lit stick of dynamite. He holds it in his mouth. In his mouth. <laughs> holding the horse reins with one hand, shooting people with his gun um, with the other hand. Like he shoots the guy at the Gatling gun, and then someone else would come up, and then he shoots the next one, and then someone else comes up and he shoots the next one. Um, and then his horse jumps over the Gatling gun, and he drops the dynamite into it, and then it blows up behind him. Yeah, it's pretty. It's, it's pretty, pretty fucking great. awesome. It's amazing. I think it's in that scene as well when, because I think other people are throwing dynamite as well. I think some of the townsfolk are throwing dynamite sticks, mm-hmm. and um, one of them throws it like right in front of um, one of the sheriff's deputies. And in slow motion, 
um, it's from the, the camera's the perspective of like inside of a store and the rider and horse fall into the glass yep. of the storefront. Yep. And that is a reference to uh, one of the shots in the uh, Sam Peckinpah film, The Wild Bunch. Okay. Uh, in the beginning of that film, something similar happens, except that the rider is shot off of their horse and falls into the storefront in slow motion. Of course, you know, that's Sam Peckinpah kind of um, made the slow motion um, famous for in, in action cinema. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, people had obviously used slow motion forever, um, but Sam Peckinpah's use of slow motion in his specifically Westerns at first, and then, you know, he just made some random action films. Um, I learned so much with this show. It's, oh man, this is not only educational for the listeners, but it's educational for the hosts too. <laughs> Hopefully it's educational for the listeners. Tell us folks, tell us on Twitter. Yeah. Tell us, tell us or your favorite social media. <laughs> um, yeah. And then at this point, um, the odds are still against the town townsfolk and Jesse. And then the rest of his posse, they return and they, um, they shoot the guys that are coming to coming to kill him. Uh, they they swoop in. They have like their 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 cavalry moment, um, including Father Time, who saves Wheezy. But then Father Time fights it. He gets killed. Yeah. He gets killed by the Geralt character. That's right. And then Wheezy kills the Geralt character. Wheezy kills the Geralt character because we he was learning to throw knives from, just, from uh, Little J. Little J. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, the only time he could successfully do it, he does it earlier. I think in the um, in the New Orleans scene, he throws a knife. But he sucks. At yeah, but he sucks, and just like the 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 hilt. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think the Gerald of Rivia character again, like in the face. And we get a cool Raimi shot of the of the of the um the knife go flipping end over end before it 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 hits uh, Geralt. Right, and then it's like the perspective too, like this is perspective of the knife. What's well, what going into like his? That's what a Raimi shot is, right? See, I'm tr- I'm trying to be fancy and use like a film term here. Isn't it? No, no, you got it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a reference. It's a perspective to... of the. Yeah, it's a perspective of like a projectile, um, right? Usually like a bullet or. Well, he started it when he did it with um, the Evil Dead series. It was like the perspective of like the the spirits the and demon, the demons yeah. like coming at a person. But then he made a western too. I think a little after this film called The Quick and the Quick Dead. And the Dead. Yep, they they um, do that a lot he, in that movie. There's a lot yeah. like that's like half, half the movie. Movies. It's the rabies shot. It's just like perspective of bullets yeah. going through people's faces and shit. And of course, because I have to mention Lord of the Rings and in, in at least every other episode, they they do it in the Mines of Moria when Legolas shoots an orc with an arrow. Yeah, yeah, yep. They do the arrow perspective there too. Um, yeah. Anyway, back to Posse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Father Time dies. Geralt, mini boss, dies. Um, and then. Billy Zane, he's like he he captures Lana, right? He, but before that, Sheriff Bates eats it. Who does? Sheriff. Oh Bates. yeah, yeah. He gets killed by um. He gets killed. No, he Sheriff Bates first. Sheriff Bates kills Carter. Kills Carver because Carter's yeah. trying to grab the deeds and run. Right, but then so he kills him, and then Jesse Lee. Yeah, there. there's a cool showdown there. Yeah, and like Jesse Lee, like he's in the doorway, and then like something explodes and he's able to like disappear for a second so then it's kind of like a cat and mouse thing yeah and he he, and he, then he, he tricks him he hangs his spurs outside the window yes so that they blow in the wind yeah that was pretty yeah cool. and then sheriff bates like jumps out and tries to get the get the drop on him but it's just the spurs he's like oh jesse lee you you clever you clever fox you yeah and then he then he's right behind him yeah shoots him through the shoots heart the, the last gold bullet yeah, and uh, even like the blacksmith earlier when he's making the gold bolts, he says something like, oh, it's a soft metal. It'll put a real big hole in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. 
Yeah. Like a, it is a pretty big hole. Like they do kind of reserve like probably the, the gory or, uh, yeah. you know, blood, uh, spurt for, for the sheriff. Yes. Um, but then there's one more enemy to fight and that's Billy Zane. Cause he's captured Lana and they're holed up in the saloon. Um, right. And the saloon's already on fire when, when Jesse drops his guns and, um, and goes to confront him. And I think there's like, there, there's, dynamite or something it's all it's all rigged to blow and there's a there's a tick it's rigged to blow there's a fuse yeah. yeah and he's like let her go let her go like your fights with me he's like no i'm gonna kill all of you i hate black people i'm racist and then um Obodo is up in the balcony and he's able to shoot most of of the henchmen that are there but then billy zane shoots him yeah he wounds a but a doesn't die. He just wounds him. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of I was hoping he wouldn't. I was like, no, I know, we got to leave like at least one or two of these characters who we care about alive. Yeah. Um, but him and Weezy, him and Weezy survive. are the ones that survive, and obviously Jesse. Yeah, and Jesse. Like, yeah, yeah. So then Jesse and Colonel Graham actually have a sword fight. They have like these their cavalry sabers. Well, there's only they... one sword. Oh, that's right. He yeah. Colonel Graham has this. Of course, he has a sword. He's a fail son. He's got a sword. Um, yeah. <laughs> and there's one point where Jesse punches it out of his hand, and the sword drops, and then they keep tussling for a little while, and then they spring up, and then he goes to grab the sword again. And he's like, ah, and he drops it because like it had it had fallen to fire. So oh, yeah. it's a huge huge <laughs> fail son moment. Yeah, and then he actually uh, he dies because the well he gets mortally wounded you could say it's not the exact reason he we dies, think he dies yeah we think he dies because jesse um like punches him or throws him towards like onto this, the sword. yeah onto the sword it's like on like a bunch of wood like there's like some firewood and he pushes him towards it and like that's where the sword had previously like landed well that's where the sword had uh, landed because he, he was such a fuck up that that's how he dropped the sword blade up yeah so <laughs> He, he, he is killed by his own fell son nature. Yeah. Um, so then we think that's it. And Lana and Jesse Lee and Bobo and Wheezy, they just, they're out in the, the middle of town. Um, but then, you know, inv- it's very much like horror movies when like there's that last moment. Yeah. Where, like when, you know, the slasher has to, you know, get up like, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, Mike Myers when he gets up at the yep. end. Um, so yeah, Colonel Graham, he just like walks out of the saloon doors on fire, he's pointing his gun. He's on fire. You know, he's clutching his, his, his saber wound. Yep. Um, but then, but then he, he shoots a Bobo. He does shoot a Bobo in the back again. Cause he shot a Bobo like in the heart at first. Then he shoots him in the back. And then does Jesse Lee shoot the little Colonel Graham? Again? The little kid that they had rescued earlier is holding Jesse Lee's, Jesse Lee's guns. And he like tosses the guns. To That's him. right. Yeah, yeah. And then Jesse Lee grabs him and shoot, rolls around and, and shoots Colonel Graham like 10 times and then the yeah. saloon blows and up. he falls back into the saloon yeah. and then the saloon blows up um and there's actually some masterful editing there mm-hmm. like it's that's a really well edited it's sequence, a cool explosion too it's a big ass explosion yeah it's a big ass explosion um yeah and then that's it like they just oh the win. the the last thing to note is um Oboto is saved because the bullet hits uh the book of poetry that Jesse Lee had given to him Oh yeah, yeah. Jesse Lee has this book of poetry that his father gave him with shiny metal cover. Um, with shiny metal cover about like there's some there's this, this poem he repeats. Nicodemus was about a slave. A, Nicodemus was a slave. It, it, it's, uh, numerous it, times. It's, it's a cool little poem. Like it, it's memorable. Like they repeat it a couple times throughout the movie, and it just like it sticks in your head. It's very like chanting and, and I don't know. It 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 definitely fits the the, the mood throughout. Yeah. 
yeah, I appreciated it. Um, yeah, so then the, the film, as we had said previously, um, bookended by the story with Woody Strode and, and the Hudlin brothers as reporters. Um, I knew this was happening, but I was like so excited when it happened. Woody Strode like takes out the little book of poetry yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. like, and I was that yeah, kid. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was me. <laughs> I actually thought he was going to say he was Jesse Lee and then he's like, and I was that nope. kid. It's <laughs> like, that's even better. It's the child that we meet two thirds into this movie who has zero lines and is unnamed. <laughs> Well, he does have a line. He he reads the poem. Oh, that's right. He does at the end of the movie read the poem. That, yeah, that's right. Because he can read and a Bobo actually can't read. So they're like teaching him to read basically. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's even interesting. I mean, they talk about literacy of yes. African-Americans who some were slaves. I don't, you know, we don't know if a Bobo is a slave, but um, there were characters in Freemanville who say I was a slave and I was I bought myself out of slavery twice. And, and actually, um, something Lana brings up, she's like part of the reason the town's so in danger is um, it's it's an actual law. And maybe, again, maybe this is something else with the show notes with this episode, but like the the grandfather law or something like like oh if, right right if anyone in your family back like three generations was a slave, which is literally all black people at that point. Um, then you can't vote either, right? Um, right. And, and that's why the towns in, that's that's one of the reasons why the towns in such a precarious position is because they can't vote on like anything in their own interests. But yeah, th- this movie has a lot of historical threads going through it that um, really come together neatly um, in the narrative. Yeah, for sure. And it's a super entertaining movie yeah. too. You know, a lot of people would say um, a film like this is just too didactic, but I think you can actually easily gloss over some of the didacticism just because, like, it is so frenetic and it is so entertaining. And what's, didac- what's didacticism um, mean, Lewis, for our uh, fourth episode, for our fourth educational term of this episode? <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, motherfuckers! Yeah. This is this is a didactic as fuck episode. Um, so yeah, didacticism is basically a term that I think originates even with like the the greeks yeah i i want to say and that means just like an educational um story more or less the very thing that ebert complained about yeah and you know it's it's a big thread throughout um film and media criticism that didacticism is is um usually a negative trait um that's the way a lot of people write about didacticism because it's it's synonymous kind of with like being preachy or as as ebert said sloganeering um but like i don't know like yeah if you learn a little bit of history while you're watching entertaining film like is that the is that the end of the fucking world i guess so if you're roger ebert i think um and and just to loop back neatly to that conversation about um quote-unquote sloganeering um I, I think a lot of people make make the assumption that anything that's political or educational or has a quote-unquote agenda um, is boring or preachy. A, who cares if so? <laughs> B, that doesn't necessarily follow. Um, things can be a, a lot of a lot of great art. A lot of popular art has um, has a very firm political stance, and it 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 presents it uh, elegantly. So yeah, I I, I don't. I, I think there's a there's an unfair assumption that um, political educational quote unquote sloganeering art is um, is preaching boring and that that doesn't really that isn't really borne out um, 
in most examples that I can think of, and especially in Posse. Yeah, definitely. I think the last thing to say about like didacticism in media is that um, throughout history, all media has been somewhat didactic. And if you think otherwise, it's because people have brainwashed us as a culture to think that in the past we weren't preachy and didactic. I mean, Superman comics are a perfect example. Superman was basically a Depression-era socialist character. But now people want to say, you know, when, uh, for instance, I think uh, Gene Young Lang uh, had a, a... a a superman comic where like he defended people in a low-income area against cops like he fucking did that in the 30s when he was introduced as well it didn't just come out of you know sjw tendencies it's always fucking been there even stan lee wrote Mm -hmm. um in his stan lee soapboxes in issues in the 70s like I'm going to be fucking political. I mean, yeah. granted, sometimes he was a reactionary, but I mean, he's still but he like, had, had, he had Jack you know, Kirby to bounce him out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so media has always been political. So deal with it. And the last, last, last thing to say about this is like, that's what, <laughs> that's what we mean when we say everything is political. Like e- even a statement, even a movie that is taken as apolitical or, or claims to be apolitical, um, that is a political statement to be apolitical is to tacitly agree with the politics of today um so that that is like a de facto political statement so even in trying to keep out keep out of it you're, you're still assenting to what's going on definitely and the ultimate thing to say is fuck you if you're not political <laughs> no just kidding i mean the reality is like your boss is political yep. your landlord is political uh those in power are the political. movies you watch are political the movies you watch are political the studio execs who make movies are political uh, have a political fuck. agenda yeah, so be political to counter their fucking bullshit. Yep. Uh, and to do- workers of note, <laughs> our politics. And our, for our political act, we'll recognize the, the workers of this uh, political movie. <laughs> um, so I thought this was amazing, and it stuck out like a sore thumb for me, like in the first few seconds of this film, mm-hmm. um, they, when they go through the opening credits. Um, the production design was done by Catherine Hardwick. Uh-huh. Um, so for those of you who don't know... Or for those of you who do know but need uh, to be reminded of this film, <laughs> she was a director of the first Twilight film, Whoa. actually. Yeah. That's wild. Um, she also directed the film Lords of Dogtown about the Z-Boys. Okay. Um, you know, like the California skaters. She did the fiction version of that because there's like the Z-Boys documentary. Then a few years later, she made the fiction version of that okay. film. Um, but yeah, most people know her from the, the first Twilight film. I've never seen all of Twilight. I've only seen bits and pieces of it, but like it's not poorly directed. No, I mean, she's yeah. talented. Um, yeah, so she did production design here, and I think overall, like, that's really well done. I can see why she was given, you know, yeah. a, a gigantic Hollywood film in Twilight later on, because she obviously has an eye for detail. Mm-hmm. Um, the other the other main group of people that we have here are um, the the livestock crew, uh, the the, hor- the horse crew. <laughs> um and the horse, the horse work is really done. I, that's actually one of the notes that I made myself. The the horse stunts are like very, they're good. Um, and the people we have here are Ivan Red Wolverton, livestock coordinator, Kip Wolverton, head wrangler, Byron Wolverton, Marjorie Wolverton, and Wendy Wolverton, all wranglers. Um, so clearly, the Wolverton family are, are talented yeah. equestrians. I think they're actually a Native American family huh. as well. Um, because they were credited, I think at least Ivan Red Wolverton was credited as um, Red Cloud Wolverton in the movie. 
um, in the credits, but then on IMDb, his he's listed as Ivan Red Wolverton. It's so a dope name. I believe they are a uh, a Native American family who does um, wrangling uh, for for Hollywood. Cool. Yeah. So then we also have um, Robin C. Larson, another wrangler, Holly Edwards, wrangler, Clint James, wrangler, and Tammy Starlin, wrangler. Uh, <laughs> and this last one. This is one's great. crazy. It's a, it's it's uncredited. So you know, special shout out to uncredited roles. Um, especially this Gary one. Harper. Yeah, especially this one. Uh, Gary Harper was the Gatling gun expert for the film. Hell yes, that's. Um, Mr. Harper, we salute you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've actually never seen a Gatling gun being reloaded in a film. I thought that was pretty interesting. Like the magazine, like really long the, um, magazine it had. I can think of one example, uh, The Last Samurai. Um, when the sa- Oh, I've never seen The Last Samurai. When, when the samurai are charging the Gatling gun line at the end, um, the cowardly the cowardly Gatling gun operators are, are fumbling to to um, to load while the, while the brave samurai charge them. And finally, they load in time. They, they mow them down. Yeah. Huh. Well... Yeah, so uh, Gary Harper, maybe he also was the Gatling gun expert at that film. I'm going to look know. that up. Maybe he's just like your go-to. Yeah. yeah. So, Nick, what is our broke recommendation? So, broke recommendation for Posse is uh, people who need to unlearn and then relearn what historical revisionism means, um, specifically Western historical revisionism, because it's a good thing, and it's a good thing in this movie. Hell yeah, for sure. Um, our woke recommendation is um, for those of you who would want to see Woody Strode in another uh, role um, outside of just having literally maybe two minutes and yes. uh, three to four lines of dialogue. Yes. Um, that is a complaint I have. Like Woody Strode is such a big part of American Western cinema. Um, it kind of sucked that he was only in the, the bookend story. He was, he was old though. Yeah. He's super old by then. I mean, um, I think he died in the 90s or the 2000s so not not too long after this um and also like his role in this movie it again with that with that metatextual um treatment of like his his place in hollywood it it makes sense that like a venerable actor like him would bookend this this piece yeah that's fair um but if you want to see him in a leading role I'm not sure if this is the only leading role he ever had in his career, but I think this is the only leading Western role he had, and that is in the film Sergeant Rutledge um, from 1960, directed by John Ford. Um, he'd worked with Ford on countless Westerns, but uh, yeah, he plays uh, the titular character, Sergeant Rutledge, who is a Buffalo soldier, mm. um, convicted, um, wrongly accused of... Uh, rape and murder of another commanding officer and the film is mostly like a trial it's very much um like to kill a mockingbird basically interesting but set during the civil war um on like a remote outpost or maybe it's right after the civil war um you know during the expansion of the west but yeah it's a really good film that's interesting worth checking out um he's great as always and it's great to see him in a leading role and for our bespoke recommendation uh anyone who's sick of mayo mayo white bread westerns as like like john if you have if if you've seen enough john wayne if you've seen enough clint eastwood um watch posse it's it's got some good um good good black cowboy representation um also good black cowboy representation that doesn't come from quentin tarantino who is another rogues gallery member of of rocon yeah oh my god and actually sure we, we should close on this note you noticed something interesting about this movie as contrasted with a certain tendency of Mr. Tarantino's. 
Yeah, so Quentin Tarantino has a certain tendency in his films. Um, people are always calling him out for this, and he always has some kind of excuse, or he just dismisses it outright. Yeah. Um, but the use of the N-word, um, you know, he, derogatory slurs. The man loves his slurs. Um, <laughs> he loves his slurs. He loves being the character in his movies who says yes, that slur. Yes, he does. In, um, yeah. in Pulp Fiction, I mean, literally, his character exists to say the N-word about a dead and, body. And, and even more egregiously in, uh, in Django. He, he plays a slaver that gets killed. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he casts himself as a slaver to say the N-word and then get killed. Um, not, not, to, not to, like, play armchair psychoanalyst here, but the, the guy has some issues. Yeah. The dude has some issues. Um, and famously, when or infamously, when he made Django Unchained, people were like, so how many times are you going to say the N-word in this film? And he's like, it's going to be said a billion times because it's justified. That's what people yep. said to people, uh, you know, in the antebellum South. Well, uh, checkmate here, Quentin Tarantino, uh, this film posse, yep. they don't say the N-word like nope. once. And they're racist characters all through. And th- this uh, is like a, a, a black production too. Like the, the director, the, the producers are all, they're all African-American and like they, didn't see the need to use that yeah. to use that word even even though they have much more of an they have, they have much, they would have much more reason than you would too right so the yeah the true big boss of the film posse yes. is actually Quintantino. Yes. <laughs> oh man posse's good folks i'm i'm totally on board with it now um yeah it's a little fr- one of the best films a little frenetic little little crazy but if if you're in the mood for that kind of thing you you could do a lot worse in this movie yeah, it has a great soundtrack yeah, too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The uh, the closing song um, of the film is probably going to be the song you'll all mm-hmm. hear in a few seconds. Hell yeah! Uh, so join us next week when we review another hopefully masterpiece. Hell yeah, folks! Take care. Yo, yo, little man, what you doing? We're watching a western. A western? Yeah, a cowboy. This ain't really no cowboy movie, man. Yo, ain't nobody on here black. You know what I'm saying? Peep the real cowboy flicks. What's a real cowboy flick? A real cowboy? I'ma show you what a real cowboy is. I'ma show you what a true cowboy is. Fat cat's it. I tell you what you do. You run on down the street and get the law and you tell them that Father Time and the Outlaw Posse are gonna kill it a little bit. Really the kid was a well-known villain. But I know a black villain that did more killing. From the western movies at TV Cherokee blood Spilling blood, killing them easy The final frontier adds another test For slaves and Indians headed towards the west Another showdown, so don't put your gun away You start shooting like your name was Doc Holliday So it's safe to say real men wore black Gunslingers that were quick to put you on your back Cowboys that were black, we never heard of you In order to get respect, there had to be a murderer In the year of 1895 Cowboys who wanted dead or alive The roof is bucked, yeah Ripped like a chainsaw The only law they followed was the law of the outlaw Cause justice was